name is Brian Young, and we are going to be talking about the most asked questions that I get as a creationist of things that uh, people are constantly asking me uh, to basically prove creation in one shape or form, or that something uh, uh, basically proves evolution. And so these are some things that we, I think, are, are very important that we need to look at, because the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 7.25 that I applied mine heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things. It even says in 1 Peter 3.15 that we need to uh, that sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. We need to be ready to give an answer because there are a lot of questions being posed out there. And today's modern day faith questions have become these type of things. Where did Cain get his wife? Okay? I get to talk about more about Cain's wife than I get to talk about my own because there are so many questions out there dealing with creation that if you can't answer, then people do not want to have anything to do with Christianity. We also read here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so these are some things that will hopefully be able to help you along in doing those things. Many people today I hear often say that everybody believes in evolution. Everybody believes in evolution. And that is an outright lie. That is not true. As a matter of fact, most people, according to the Gallup poll, do not believe in evolution. We're being duped into believing that uh, all scientists believe in that, but that's not true at all. There are many thousands, literally, of scientists that believe in not only creation, but the creation of the Bible. And what I mean by that is an earth that is very young. But what's happening is oftentimes they're very afraid to vocalize this because if they do, they might lose their job, they're ridiculed, they're blackballed, all different kinds of things like that happen. One example here is Roger DeHart. Uh, we got a great video on, uh, called Icons of Evolution that will kind of go through his story as well. He could not even inform students of the errors in their own public school textbooks, even though the materials he was using to inform them of these errors were from secular studies. The board said that he had to have anything that he would present in the classroom approved before he could take it into the classroom. Now, no, no other teacher has to do that, so why did he have to do that? Well, we'll talk about some of those reasons as well coming up. Kevin Haley, in Oregon, he lost his job for exposing errors in the textbooks simply by exposing the errors with non-Christian materials, secular materials. We see William Dembski in, uh, at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He uh, was fired basically because he uh, advocated the intelligent design which leaves God out of it. It just says that there has to be intelligence to get information. Into, into DNA and RNA and so on. Forrest Mims, he was a science teacher and a writer for 20 years. He even published materials in uh, National Geographic, Science Digest, American Journal of Physics, and others. And he was denied a job as a writer for Scientific American because he was a creationist, just because of that, when that became known. We see Rod Levake in Faribault, Minnesota. He was uh, uh, caught in the creation-evolution debate as well. We see another person here uh, from the Indianapolis Star, 2001. Teachers who question evolution quits his job rather than accepting the reprimand that he was about to receive. Here, an educator quits over reprimand for teaching evolution alternative. So one of the reasons that people aren't doing this is because it's scary to come out as a creationist. You lose all your credibility among certain groups and you could lose your job. Financial 
you know, compromises. We've got the freedom to teach creation in public schools, as we'll be talking about. It's whether or not you're willing to take the hit for that freedom, exercising that freedom. Truth be told that not only do we have thousands of people today that believe in creation, but in the past, science has been founded upon a creation philosophy. Here are just a few tiny uh, examples. We have here Francis Bacon, Kepler, Pascal, Boyle, Newton, Isaac Newton. Okay, all of these th people here. William Winston, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Herschel. We've got Cuvier, William Buckland. All of these people. Faraday, Morris, Herschel, Owen. All of these teachers are great scientists. Even Jewell. We're all creationists. And oftentimes people will say to me that evolution has brought so many things to the scientific community, but creation hasn't brought anything for, for the world today. It's all based on religion. Well, our whole basis of science is not based on religion, but people like Mendel, Pasteur, Kelvin, these creationists, Maxwell, Lister, Fleming, Carver, these are all creationists. So don't tell me that with all of these people like Ramses and Braun, these people that you know, are very famous and founders of the scientific community or the scientific research and, and so many things that we're benefiting from today, don't tell me that creation hasn't benefited society in any way, shape, or form. There's a great book called In Six Days. There's another one called On the Seventh Day that will give you over 90 different scientists between the two of them that are claiming creationism with doctorates. Many of them Ivy League school uh, professors so what about this separation of church and state? <clears throat> what about all that? Can we actually teach creation in the Bible in a public school? Is that legally allowed? People often tell me that's not really as much of a most asked question as the most uh, stated statement. You can't teach creation in a public school. You can't talk about the Bible out there in the public. Well, that's absolutely false. But let me, uh, to answer this question, let's go back and look at how our education system actually started. Because if you look back in uh, 1777, the New England Primer, it's very fascinating. This was the public school textbook, okay, as well as private school textbooks. The Primer, well, this is a first grade textbook. Now, first of all, not only is this pretty amazing what first graders were learning back then, but it's also pretty amazing what they were learning. Not just uh, the the content, but as well as the, the uh, degree of the content. We see here, the primer, in learning the alphabet, said this, for A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That S kind of looks like an F. That's how they used to write that. B, heaven defined the Bible mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. D, the deluge drowned the earth around. E, Elijah hid by ravens fed. F, the judgment made Felix afraid. These are the things that our public schools were teaching our children back then. Here are some of the lessons that the youth were learning from this alphabet as well. A, a wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. B, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewithin. And you can go all the way through the alphabet, and God's Word was the center, the very center of our public education systems how far we have fallen today. So, what is the history of the teaching of creation in public schools? Obviously, it's God's Word. So what happened is, from the 1800s to the 19... well, basically 25, when the Scopes trial took place, 
Creation was taught right in our public schools, even right from the Bible, as it was added into the primer and other things like that. But what happened in 1925 when the Scopes trial, the Great Monkey trial, took place there in Dayton, Tennessee, uh, everything changed at that point. From 1920 to 1925, there were some states that were passing laws. And these laws were actually banning evolution, not creation, evolution from our schools. And they were saying, we can't teach evolution, this is wrong. And so the Scopes trial actually was trying to defend creationism. Now, technically, we won the trial, but we lost the war. We won the, won the battle, lost the war. So what happened is the ACLU had tried to get this law overturned, that evolution could not be, or, or evolution, the law said evolution couldn't be taught, and they were trying to overturn that law. Well, since then... In 1968, the last law that was banning evolution was overturned. So 1968, there were still laws that banned evolution. Not creation, evolution. And that has uh, now obviously changed. 1980, an Arkansas law demanded equal time. And that one was overturned. So, this Louisiana law passing a law, as, or passed also a law that said that requiring teachers to teach creation Okay? if they taught evolution alongside of it. So this is kind of some of the history that we see going on. I would like you to uh, tell you what Stephen Jay Gould says. He is an evolutionist, one of the most uh, popular ones. He's, he's uh, populated the idea of punctuated equilibrium, that evolution takes place on such a rapid scale because uh, we can't see any evidence of it, so it's got to be rapid. So geologically speaking, it was so rapid that we couldn't see it. Stephen Jay Gould said this, it has never been against the law to teach creation. No statute exists in any state to bar instruction in creation science. It could be taught before, and it can be taught now. The, the Supreme Court ruling did not in any way outlaw the teaching of creation science in public schools. Quite simply, it ruled that in the form taken by the Louisiana law, it is unconstitutional to demand equal time for the particular subject. Creation science can still be brought into science classrooms if and when teachers and administrators feel that it is appropriate. Numerous surveys have shown that teachers and administrators favor just this route. And in fact, creation science is being taught in science courses throughout the country. Stephen Jay Gould is even admitting, an evolutionist, a very popular one today, that creation can be taught. It just cannot be required. It's up to the school board, it is up to the principal, it's up to the teachers. But yet we see many of these teachers who say it's up to them and they're bringing this to their teacher or to the students are being fired. Something's wrong. The ACLU, and we'll talk about that coming up. We also see here the National Center for Science Education. Uh, Dr. Eugenia Scott, she is an evolutionist. Now this foundation, is, its primary focus is to combat creationism. It's that's, that's the primary focus of this institution. This is what she said. The Supreme Court decision says only that the Louisiana law violates the constitutional separation of church and state. It does not say that no one can teach scientific creationism. And unfortunately, many individual teachers do. Some school districts even require equal time for creation and evolution. Okay, so... Even she, even though her primary focus is to combat creationism, is honestly admitting that the law says it is okay. You can go to their website here and even see 
that um, their whole goal is to combat this creation teaching. Uh, William Provine says, Teachers and school boards in public schools are already free under the Constitution of the USA to teach about supernatural origins if they wish in their science classrooms. Laws can be passed in most countries of the world requiring discussion of supernatural origins in science classes and still satisfy national legal requirements. And I have a suggestion for evolutionists. Include discussions of supernatural origin in your classroom and promote discussions of them in public and other schools. Come off your high horse about having only evolution taught in science classes. The exclusionism you promote is painfully self-serving and smacks of elitism. Why are you afraid of confronting the supernatural creationism believed by the majority of the persons in the USA and perhaps worldwide? Shouldn't students be encouraged to express their beliefs about origins in a class discussing origins by evolution? He is a biology and philosophy teacher. Okay? So, even the impact article from the Institute for Creation Research, number 196, is giving you all this information saying creation can be taught in, in a public school. Our kids need to know this because our kids need to be able to bring these things up. They need to be teaching these things. They need to be doing speeches and debates and bringing creation speakers into their public school systems to get this word out. But they're being taught that you can't, and that's an outright lie. You see... You can teach creation even right out of the Bible in a public school classroom. We all know that what the effects have happened in 1963 when prayer was taken out of school, and we'll talk about some of that later. But when that prayer was taken out of school, it didn't mean that the Bible was kicked out of the school. They just said you couldn't pray. The teachers couldn't lead the prayers in the public schools. And so what happened is in 1963, the courts were saying that the Bible could not be used to get people saved in the, in the classroom, but it could be used for literary analysis, it could be used for history, uh, it could be used for a lot of different things. Okay, they didn't throw it out. Who's thrown it out? The Christians have thrown it out, because we don't stand up for the freedoms that we have. But the courts didn't. Okay? We've been deceived by the ACLU. Let me tell you a little bit about the ACLU and how this works, okay? You should go back. Kids, you ought to go back and you ought to start a Bible study in your school. You can do that. We've got a great book here as well called uh, Teaching Creation in, in Public Schools that will show you how you can actually use uh, creationism and the Bible in your schools. You get a Bible study started in your school because what's going to happen is the ACLU is probably going to come and they're going to scream about this. And they're going to threaten the school boards and they'll say, if you don't get this out, if you, stop, if you don't stop teaching creation in the, in, the, in the schools, we're going to sue you. Well, the school boards and the principals and the superintendents, they don't want to get sued, so they back down. They say, okay, all right, all right. But every single time the school boards stand up and say, hey, they have a legal right to do it, guess who backs down? The ACLU. The ACLU has been using a scare tactic to try and convince school boards and, and teachers as well as students, that they can't do this. But if you stand up, it's the ACLU that backs down because they know. They know that legally they don't have a, a foot uh, a, or a ground to stand on there. Not at all. So, states can legally require teachers to discuss evolution, but they cannot require them to teach creation. It's allowed, you just can't make it a requirement. We even see here the educational research analysis. 
says, teachers may discuss creation in science classroom if they wish. Here, courts allow states to require teaching scientific weaknesses in evolution theory, but not requiring discussion evidence for creation. Okay? In the uh, landmark ruling of the district of Abington Township versus Shemp, okay, 1963, they said that the Bible is worthy of study. They even said it's worthy of study. They didn't kick it out. They said it's good. You just can't use it for religious purposes of, of trying to have people be saved. Okay? We also see here as well, the Supreme Court stated that the Bible may be constitutionally used as an appropriate study of history, civilization, ethics, comparative religion, or the like. 1980, Stone versus Graham said that. Okay? Permitting public school observer observations which include religious elements promotes the secular purposes of advancing the student's knowledge and appreciation of the role that our religious heritage has played in the social, cultural, and historical development of civilization. That was Flory versus Sioux Falls School District there in 1980 as well. We see uh, Edwards versus Aguilar. Teachers already possess the flexibility to present a variety of scientific theories about the origins of humankind and are free to teach any, of, any and all facets of this subject. Teaching a variety of scientific theories about the origins of mankind to school children might be done with a clear secular intent of enhancing the effectiveness of science instruction. That it'll even enhance it, not take away from it. California State Board of Education policy on teaching of natural sciences says this, discussions of any scientific fact, hypothesis, or theory related to the origins of the universe, the earth and life, are appropriate to the science curriculum. So obviously we are being duped into this. You want more information, you can get the book Crisis in the Classroom. And that will give you uh, further information on this topic. Uh, people often say, like I said, we have to keep separation of church and state. Did you know that there's no such phrase, separation of church and state, in our Constitution? It's not there. What happened with this whole thing is Thomas Jefferson used that phrase in a letter to a pastor in Dayton, Connecticut. And now that seems, everybody, you ask people and they think that's in the Constitution. It's not. The First Amendment has erected a wall of separation between church and state, Thomas Jefferson said. That's how he used it. That wall was a one-dimensional wall, basically to keep government from running the church. That's all it was, and to have one church ruling the government. But it had nothing to do with how it's being applied today. The next question that we see is people often say, how can we see starlight billions of light years away if the earth is not millions of years old? Because you see, if you have one light year away, that means that it's a distance that light will travel in one year. If you've got a million light years, it would take you a million years for that light to be seen, they say. So the earth has to be millions of years old. And the Bible says it's only a few thousand years old. So how can you see that light? Well, it's very simple. You see, we have never seen a star form. Never have we seen a star form. Now, you read the papers and they think, oh no, we see a star forming. Well, what they're actually seeing is a ball of gas out there. And they assume that over millions of years, that ball of gas and debris, it's going to come together to be a star. That's different than saying there's a star forming. We don't see stars forming. That's a completely different uh, ball of wax that you're talking about there. Well, Nehemiah, verse, chapter 9, verse 6 says this, that thou, even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all the things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worship thee. Notice that God preserves, not only did he make those stars, but he preserves them. 
Have you ever wondered why we haven't seen you know, a star out of the Big Dipper disappear? Or any of those major constellations, as a matter of fact? We should. You see, we find these things called supernovas. A supernova is a star that blows up. Now, astronomers have observed that about every 30 years, there is a star that dies and causes this supernova. Every 30 years. Now, that's interesting. Because if you have a star forming, or exploding, I should say, every 30 years, why is there less than 300 supernovas that have ever been observed? Because if the Earth is millions of years old, we ought to have several hundred million of them. But we don't. But the Bible says that He preserves those stars. It's not until the end of the world, as we see in Revelation, that these stars are going to start falling from the sky as a sign of the end. Okay, there are also some things we need to consider when we're dealing with starlight and time. Okay? One of the things you need to look at is that scientists cannot measure distance really accurately beyond 100 light years away accurately. Now, I do believe that those stars are great vast distances away. But how accurate those distances are measured is another, another issue altogether. We also see here that no one knows what light really is, technically. Okay? Or that it travels the same speed throughout time, space, and matter. It could travel at different speeds through different types of matter. Okay? Now, I think these are, these are all legitimate concerns, but I think probably not the best answer as far as I'm concerned from a creationist point of view. But we do know that the speed of light really does not seem to be the constant that it you know, has been assumed to be for so long. Okay, the February 18, 1999, Houston Chronicle shows us that at Harvard University, they got light slowed down to 38 miles per hour. Okay, the Dallas Morning News, 228-2000, said that they've slowed it down to one mile per hour. So light can be slowed down. Not only that, here we see Creation Technical Journal showing you that the, the measurement of light we have measured is slowing down. It's decaying, just like the second law of thermodynamics which suggests that it should. Here's another article. Speed of light may have changed over history, study says. So, speed of light could have changed. What that means is that if it was traveling faster in the past, it could have gotten here much faster and it wouldn't take a million years to get there. Okay? Now, I still don't think that that's the answer I prefer, but it's one that we have to consider. The third thing, creation was finished and mature when God made it. Okay, when God made this earth, was Adam walking and talking? Yeah, he didn't create Adam and Eve as babies. They didn't have to sow the seed and plant and wait 30 years for these plants to grow to have fruit. God created this earth mature with the Adam and Eve walking and talking, the plants already producing fruit, and I believe the light already there. So I think he created a mature earth. But if you don't like that answer as well, there are still others that we need to consider as well. Okay, a light year is a distance, not a time. Okay, a light year is a distance. So you can't say that if it's a million light years away that it would take a million years to take place. It's not a time measurement, it's a distance measurement. And because of the speed of light and different things like that, that's going to you know, throw a wrench into the thing. You see, since the speed of light is not proven to be consistent, when we talk about star distance, we have to actually be talking about distance, not time at all. Now, there are some other things that we can talk about here with that as well. Okay, uh, redshift. They're saying, look, the Big Bang blew up, and now we see the redshift of light moving these stars further and further away. 
Well, what's causing that star uh, to have a red shift, moving towards a red spectrum? Well, very simple. There could be a number of answers here as well. Again, number one, stretching out from creation. The Bible says that it's stretching out. We'll look at some of those verses. It could be tired light, light that's wearing out. Okay? We don't know what the effects of traveling light are through you know, who knows what in space. It could be caused by something of that. It could simply be the Doppler effect of light moving away. That's not a problem. I, I don't think that's a problem at all. We could see light slowing down or being speeding up or, or causing it to be speed up through black holes or white holes as well. Isaiah 45 verse 12 says that I have made the earth and created man upon it. I even, uh, my hands stretched out the heavens. It could be that God, as he, we're just seeing evidence of creation, how God stretched out the heavens. And we're seeing that stretching out. As a matter of fact, we have some uh, great uh, science supporting that that would cause the redshift of light. Jeremiah 10.12 also says that God stretched out the heavens. You want a great uh, book to read on this. It gets a little complicated, but on white hole theories by Russell Humphreys, get creation and time. And he's going to talk about when God stretched out the earth, that that would cause many of the things we see here with this starlight. So that's not... Uh, any evidence of the earth being millions of years old. So why did God use a flood and not just have all the people die? Why didn't God just say, boom, you're dead? Why did He waste all that time of, of having Noah build this ark and so on? Well, things to consider in that are this. First of all, it led, left evidence. Evidence that God is a God of judgment. You see, Satan does not want you to believe in Noah's flood. Why? Because it left evidence that God is a God of judgment. He will judge sin, and that means that He could do it again. Satan doesn't want you to believe that, does he? Okay, so judgment on sin because of that evidence that was left. We also see that it allowed time. It allowed man to have time to build that ark, and not only build the ark, but more importantly, to repent. God gave them 120 years to repent. 1 Peter 3.20 says that God is long-suffering, that He waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Why? Because He wanted people to repent. He didn't want eight people going on that boat. He wanted everybody to have a chance. And likewise today, He is being patient with us. So that's why He did that. So have fresh dinosaurs been found? That's a big question, and the reason being is because if fresh dinosaurs have been found, they shouldn't be millions of years old then, should they? Mm -mm. Because they can't, you know, be millions of years old and still bones. They'd have to be fossilized or deteriorated or something like that. Great book here called The Great, Dinosaur Alaska, or the Great Alaskan Dinosaur Adventure. Uh, we'll talk about how we are finding literally tons of fresh dinosaur bones, not fossils, bones, falling out of the glaciers right there in Alaska. The Journal of Science, December 24, 1993, talked about a duck-billed dinosaur that was found that still had cell characteristics that could be seen in them. Northwestern Alaska, 1961, they found dinosaur bones that were unpermeabilized, basically unfossilized. We see here along the banks uh, there at Prudhoe Bay in Alaska, they found dinosaur bones that were as fresh as yesterday's dog bones. It says their structure was porous and the fossils were not mineralized. Okay? That shouldn't happen if dinosaurs are millions of years old. just shouldn't happen. Here we see a heart of stone. Scientists say they found a dinosaur heart. Okay? That can't happen. So if there really was a flood, where are all the human bones then, they'll say? 
should be human bones that have been found all over. Well, I can say the same thing. If the earth is really millions and billions of years old, where are all of the bones? You see, actually only about 4,000 human dinosaur bones have been found, or human bones have been found. Now, the reason for that, there's a, a lot of them again, as usually there is with any question, but you see, people bloat and float. When we die, we bloat and float, where a lot of animals are different. Our flesh, our bones are different than animals, and so we don't fossilize very well as either. We also have, you know, knowledge, wisdom. We could be able to escape coming floodwaters where a lot of these dumb animals are just going to get buried. That, that's not going to happen to them. So that's really probably the biggest reason why we don't find human bones is because we escaped as much as we could as long as there was dry land. Plus, you know, we could tread water for a while. And there are some that have been found, no question. But a lot of times it's just pieces because those floodwaters are going to cause you to get all messed up and lose pieces. And like I said, because of the, the makeup of a human body, we fall apart way faster than any animal will do in the water. So was ancient man primitive? That's what we're being taught. You know, they say, what about cavemen? You know, we're primitive people millions of years ago. or Actually, we weren't even supposed to be around back then. But even 100,000 years ago, we were supposed to be these primitive people. Well, if we were so primitive, why do we find some amazing things? We've got a great book here called The Puzzle of Ancient Man, which we'll talk about a lot of things. One of which here is this. What is this? Looks just like an airplane, doesn't it? Now, this is in the Smithsonian. Now, they say this is a stylized insect because there's no way they could be airplanes when these things are over a thousand years old, they say. So it's got to be an insect. But... That doesn't look much like an insect to me. Now, I'm not saying this is an airplane. All I'm saying is this is interesting. Do these look like insects to you? Here's some more. I'm going to suggest that what we see in the fossil record is so amazing that it can't be that people were sitting around fires going, hoo, 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 fire. Okay? That's not going to work for what we see in the fossil record. Here's a cast iron pot that was found in coal. Coal takes millions of years to form, they say. So what's this cast iron pot doing in there? Here's some megalith stones that are so huge. Okay, they weigh over 100 tons, some of them. That's big. That means that our world's largest cranes today, they can only lift about 3,000 tons. So what in the world, how in the world could they do that? This guy here, Secrets of the Lost Races, says... What is truly impossible about the block is that it is the size of a five-story house and weighs an estimated 20,000 tons. We have no combination of machinery today that could dislodge such a weight. So even our world's largest cranes combined couldn't move some of these larger ones that weigh over 20,000 tons. Here's a, a coal, uh, or inside coal we found this uh, bell with a pagan god on it. That, does, that takes some you know, intelligence, that can't be primitive. Here we see a four and a half inch high zinc and silver vessel that was found in solid rock that was supposed to be over 600 million years old. That can't happen. Did you know we found analog computers in the fossil record? Analog computers. People are saying, oh, they're always telling me, we're smarter, we've got the computer. I say, well, first of all, yeah, we need it because we're getting dumber, and second of all, so did they. They were just different. You know, one invention of electricity can change the world, right? One invention has changed the world. Now, I don't think we really invented electricity. They had it before, as you'll see uh, 
coming up here. Here's another picture of that uh, analog computer that has been found. Okay, it was basically 100 BC that this was there. That's pretty incredible. Here's a hammer. We talked about this in our pre-flood world presentation, but this hammer here, we can't make it today. It's iron and chlorine mixed together, found with dinosaurs, and we can't do it. We found batteries near the pyramids. In my book, Doubts About Creation, not after this, I have the original picture of that. What were they doing with electricity? That's why I say we didn't invent electricity. They had it before. But because it was lost somewhere down the line, we had to reinvent it. It was lost. God says that any nation that does not uh, worship Him is going to be destroyed. And when they were destroyed, a lot of the knowledge and intelligence that they had, the discoveries they had, were lost with it. They had brain surgery. And many of these people actually healed because uh, the bones healed up, showing us that it was successful brain surgery. Lots of different things like that that they did that are just weird that we see in the fossil record. Here's a, ski, a steel ball, or I should say it's not a steel ball. Steel won't even scratch it. And it's, got, it's like a, a globe almost. We're not sure what it is, but it's very advanced technologically. We even found here what, in, in just a, what looked like a geode, when it was broke open, they found this, what appears to be a superconductor capacitator inside it. Now, the surface was dated to be at least a half million years old. It was found... Okay, at the peak, 4,300 feet high in the mountains. Okay? Not only that, now, for some reason, this has never been professionally examined by any scientist today in, in great detail at all. It appeared to be magnetic and does seem to compare to our ceramic co conductors today, like spark plugs. We have nanotechnology that has been found. Approximately two million years old, they say. It was found in the Ural Mountains in Russia. Now, these things range, the size of them, from three centimeters all the way down to an incredible three thousandths of a millimeter. That is tiny. That takes incredible technology. Yet, two million years old, people weren't even supposed to be around. Now, obviously, the answer that people are going to give is, well, then aliens made it. Well, no, we'll talk about aliens coming up here as well. This thing is also made of tungsten as well as other rare materials that have a melting point of 6,100 degrees below zero, or 6,100 degrees below Fahrenheit, not below anything. That's incredible technology. Yet, they were able to do it. Cloning is another answer, a question that always comes up. Is cloning okay? Well, there's a lot of problems with cloning, and it really kind of connects with the whole idea of abortion. Because cloning, when we look at it, here we see a, you know, good grief, I've been cloned. When we see cloning, you don't get the exact thing. And this is being praised as some great thing to, uh, you know, get rid of disease and things like that. I'm not saying that it might not be able to be useful for that. But before we get into this cloning, let me give you some examples of how complex the human being is. Okay, we're basically taking DNA. Now, DNA is so amazing. It is the most complex thing in the entire universe. All right, your DNA, just in your body alone, would fill about two tablespoons. It's over 50 trillion cells. Now, you take that information in the DNA that you have, just in your body, and it is more complex than all the entire world's computer programs put together. That's how complex it is. Not only that, but you could take your chromosomes, 
Okay, your DNA, take the chromosomes in there, unwind it, stretch it out, and it would reach to the Earth and the Moon, to the Earth, to the Moon, and back five million times. That's how much information is in your, in your DNA. Now, you tell me that by some freak chance of evolution that that came about, that kind of information came about, there's no way. Okay? You could take all the information that is in your body's DNA and throw that in the Grand Canyon and it would fill the Grand Canyon 40 times with books. That's a lot of information. Okay? So this cloning, you're not making new life. What you're doing is you are basically copying it. And basically, God is doing it. All right, I'll explain how this works. Now, first of all, the most common thing that we have heard about cloning was this sheep named Dolly. All right, she was cloned at a cost of $50,000 after 277 failures. And what ended up happening is she was maturing or uh, aging at a faster rate than what the, the clone of, or the one that was cloned from, was. She's now dead. Okay, Dolly died. There were many problems with this. This is not the, this wonderful miracle thing that it's being kind of, I guess, shown to be. Let me explain how this works. You, you might have heard of in vitro fertilization. When people are having a, a baby, what they'll do is they'll take, in vitro simply means in glass. And here we have basically sperm trying to get to that egg, okay? You know how that works. You probably saw that, you know, the talking baby movie. I can't remember the name of it right now, but how that works. It's a race to get to the egg, all right? And typically then one sperm will get to that egg and then basically the, the egg won't allow others to get in there, typically. Well, this is in vitro fertilization. It takes place in glass. What they'll do is they'll take the egg and they'll, they'll fertilize that in basically glass, in a test tube. Now, the problem with this is what they do then is what they're going to get is here you can see kind of the sperm trying to get into that egg. And then what happens is they try and get uh, this zygote to form. Once that happens, you get this basically this uh, one-celled human being beginning okay, in a test tube. Then they'll take this out. okay, And, well, first of all, what they take out is they grade these things. And you can see here grade 4, 3, 2, all the way down to 0. They want the best grade. Okay, grade 0 there is not a very good one at all. Grade 4, they're going to take the best grade, the best embryo out of that test tube, and then what they'll do is they have a couple of choices. One of the choices is they can implant it in a uterus. Okay? And then what's going to happen is that God continues to take place, uh, and he... You basically have a normal baby, you'll birth that baby out, and it's in vitro fertilization. Now, the problem is, what do you do with all the extra ones? Because you don't just get one embryo from this. What do you do with all the extra embryos? Well, you have one choice of freezing them or just throwing them in the trash. Now, my question is this. We already have had fertilization take place, have we not? The sperm has met the egg. We've got an embryo. You know what that embryo is? It's a human being. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You've already got conception that's taken place. So what are you doing with all these extra embryos? You're killing them. You're getting rid of them. You freeze them for a while in case you want another one, but then they can only be frozen for a certain amount of time and then they have to throw those away as well. Let me explain to you how God's procreative process takes place. Okay? In, vert, in, in vitro fertilization is causing abortions. And so I disagree with that because of that. 
unless you're willing to have them all. And this is why many people who are taking these drugs, the doctors go through this process called selective reduction because you might have 12 babies. And so then the doctors will say, we've got to get rid of you know, 10 of these or 11 of these. This is why some of these women say, no, I don't believe in abortion, and they'll have 12, and let God just do what he does. So there are problems that you don't often hear about. These do cause abortion. Well, God's procreative process is kind of like what I showed you here just a minute ago, but basically the sperm will meet the egg. When the sperm meets the egg, you get this simple uh, one-celled human being, which we call a zygote, okay? That's just a scientific term for it. And what happens then is this inner cell mass begins to develop by five days, just five days later, and it's called a blastocyst, and you can kind of see it there, that kind of mass of cells. That blastocyst basically becomes that human being, all right? And so here you have that human being at eight weeks old. Now, that's a big jump from five days to eight weeks, but what they'll do is they'll take that blastocyst out, Okay, which is a one-celled human being, basically. Actually, by now, it's many cells. And they'll stick that in a Petri dish. So what you've done is you've taken the baby out and stuck it into a Petri dish rather than allowing God's procreative process to take place in the mother's womb. Okay? So when you extract these stem cells for stem cell research, this is how they get that, okay? By extracting this blastocyst, what happens to the baby? You kill it. And so stem cell research, which is part of, you know, a lot of that's needing in, needed in cloning, is causing abortion. If you're getting your stem cells from these blastocysts, human beings, you're killing them to get that. And so I disagree with stem cell research if that's the way it's done. Because then what they're going to do is they take these petri dish of cells and they believe that these things then can make bone marrow and nerve and pancreatic cells, which is true. They can. And so they use these, and it's being promoted as, look, we can restore bone marrow because of stem cell research. And they can. But is it worth a life? I mean, do we kill somebody to save somebody? I don't believe that's true. Or right. God says, no, it's murder. Now, we have cloned the first human being recently. Okay, that, there's been many times people say, oh, we've cloned a human being. That's been a lie. That's been all media. There's been nothing to actually support that. But for the first time, we actually have cloned a human being. Sixteen women donated a total of 242 eggs, and they had 30 cloned embryos that reached the blastocyst stage, human being stage. All right? Well, what ended up happening, only one of those, those embryonic stel, uh, stem cell line eventually was established. So that means 29 of them died in Korea, okay? So here's how the cloning process works. Now that you understand the stem cell, here's how cloning works. What they do is you have a normal egg cell from, from a woman, okay? In that egg cell, you have 23 chromosomes in the egg cell. Then what you do is you have to remove that nucleus, remove those 23 chromosomes from that egg. Then what you'll do is you're going to take a, a skin cell. It could be any cell off of anybody. It could be the same woman. It could be any man off the street. Just take a skin cell. And in that skin cell, which, call, which is called a somatic scale, a cell, which is somatic means body, a body cell, 
you have now 46 chromosomes. Okay? Now, you've removed the 23, and now from this skin cell, you are going to put that nucleus of that skin cell into that membrane. So now you've got 46 chromosomes in there rather than 23. Okay? So then what's going to happen is they'll stimulate that. And after stimulating it, it will become that zygote, that one-celled human being, where you get this blastocyst to go. So in itself right now, have we done anything that probably goes against God's word? I would say probably not. I think we're getting you know, dangerous, probably you know, doing more than we ought to. But at this process, or at this stage, nothing, I guess, has really been bad yet. We've got a five-day uh, five human blastocyst here that can now be planted into a human being. But, now here is where maybe it might get a little bit fuzzy. Is this what God does or wants in a procreative process? What I want you to understand, here's basically the same picture of what happens again. We've removed one skin cell from a man, and you've removed the, the 23 chromosomes from the woman in her egg, and now what you've done is you've fused them together, and this is where we left off. You have two choices. You can take that blastocyst, insert it into a surrogate mother and have a baby, and no abortion has taken place, or you can take those stem cells and put them in a Petri dish, which eventually is going to kill that baby. And that's where the problem becomes. One is called reproductive cloning by when you plant it into a surrogate mother. Reproductive cloning does not kill anything, and so I think there's a possibility that could be okay. The problem is, how many parents does that have? Does that baby have now? One. You have removed, it's really only got one parent. And I don't believe that's what God intended in the procreative process. So that's why you could argue that this would become unbiblical. But now if you take it into a uh, Petri dish, that is called therapeutic cloning. So when people say, are you against cloning, it really depends on what kind of cloning you mean. Now, I think it's all you know, pretty risky, but at the same time, I am dead set against therapeutic cloning or what is called somatic cell nuclear transfer. And this is the, what politicians are doing, is they're using this as kind of a, oh, I guess a word game. You write some of your senators and things like that, they'll say, I am against cloning, but I am in favor of somatic cell nuclear transfer. What they're saying is, I'm against cloning, but I'm for cloning. Okay? I would be more for cloning than I would be for somatic cell nuclear transfer. Because what you're doing is you're having an abortion. So we need to be very careful about that. Like I said, this is the view of cloning, is that you're going to get an exact, identical... You know, if you could clone me, you think you'd have somebody that looks the same exactly like me. Now, I know that would be kind of scary, but that's not what you're going to get. You could actually get somebody that looks better than me. All right? Okay? You take all these puppies here. They're all hanging out. Okay? And you think that you could clone that. That's not what's going to happen. Here is actually Rainbow and her clone of Copycat. Isn't that original? Okay? Notice that Copycat, the cloned cat, is bigger boned. The coloring is different. So what happens isn't an exact identical copy of what you clone. 
Not to mention, you know, the health problems that are coming, uh, maturing uh, faster and things like that. Cloning is unsafe, this article says, for the clone and the surrogate mother. These are some other issues that we need to deal with. Okay, we see here, Dolly the sheep. She was the first cloned mammal. One live birth out of 277, as we talked about. Okay, we also see mice. Five live births out of, uh, well, five, 613. Pigs, five out of 72. Goats, three out of 85. And you can go on down here. Uh, rabbits, six out of 1,852. This is not an exact science. So what that means is in human cloning, how many abortions are going to take place? How many failures will take place before they get it right? We see here, a review of all the world's cloned animals suggests that every one of them is genetically and physically defective. Would you want your child to be cloned then? Not me. Okay, every one of them. There is abundant evidence that cloning can and does go wrong and no justification for believing that. And this will not happen, or that, that this will not happen with humans. The same thing is going to happen. Okay, now this is kind of heavy stuff, I realize that. So we're going to take a little break here. Let me ask you this. If Oli, you know Sven and Oli? The old Sven and Oli jokes. If Oli had a clone, just cloned, and Oli pushes his naked clone off of a tall building, would that be, first choice, murder? Or would that be suicide? Or would it be an obscene clone fall? You choose, okay? You see, it's not an exact duplicate when we clone. So let me uh, go back here to adult stem cells. Adult stem cells are thought to be pluripotent now. Pluri means many, potent, powerful. At one time, it was thought that adult stem cells could not produce uh, many cells. I mean, if you took out a, a skin cell, it would be a skin cell. It has now been discovered that they are pluripotent, that an adult stem cell that you can get from any one of us alive without aborting a baby are pluripotent, that they can become uh, bone marrow, they can become nerve, they can become all different kinds of things. And that has been discovered now. Okay, so, why do we need to abort babies to get these stem cells if we can get them from adult cells that are pluripotent? We can get bone marrow, peripheral blood, for skeletal muscles, all these different things. Um, uh, uh, for example here, bone marrow. From bone marrow, we can get cartilage, tendon, muscle, fat, liver, brain, nerve, blood cells, heart, all these different types of tissues. So we can get them from other sources. Why do we have to abort babies to do it? Now, genetic engineering, there are even controversies among that. Is it true that we can maybe cure some diseases by cloning or, or stem cell research? Yes, I think that there is a possibility that that could happen. But I am dead set against it if it means that we are going to have to kill somebody to do that. The, uh, you know, we're doing some amazing things. For example, here you see a picture of a, a mouse they took uh, cartilage, basically, and basically had this grow in a petri dish that was shaped like a human ear. And they grew a human ear, then, on the back of this mouse. Now, what I want you to understand is that this, people would say, well, look, they grew a human ear. No, well, yes and no. It's not like they put human information in there to get that. They just have cartilage cells growing there in the shape <laughs> of this mold that they have, and then they'll cut that off and then they can sew it onto the human. 
All right, so are there some benefits happening, things that they can do by cell research and, and stem cell research? Yes, yes, there is. But at what cost? And that's the question. So overall, I would say yes. Uh, I would be against it if it's going to involve um, killing a baby. Now, there's hope that down the road you might be able to, just like you go at a grocery store to pick out what you like, that you can have a child and say, well, I want my child to have blue eyes and I want it to be a boy or a girl. I want it to be tall or I want it to you know, look like this. I want it to look like me. I don't want it to look like me. You can do all different kinds of things like that. And that's kind of the hope. But is that also interfering with God's process? I frankly don't believe that we're ever going to get to this point. I don't think God's going to allow that, but who knows? Uh, I know that I think, for me, I want God to be able to do that. But abortion is a big enough problem without stem cell research. Okay? In 31 years of abortion, okay, there is no reason or any reason that abortion um, should have been allowed. We have okay, 1,186,039 children being killed every year. That's 3,250 a day or 135 every hour. One every 30 seconds is dying. 43 million since 1973. Let me give you an idea of how many people that is that we have killed since 1973. You think that would be enough right there? How about this? If we took a, that many states out of the population of those states. No, still not. How about that? You think that's probably the amount that we've killed since 1973? No, that many right there. That's how many people we have killed through abortion since 1973. Now, that does not include that what we're doing here with stem cell research and, and things like that. So, we've got some problems here. Where do the races come from? We hear this a lot, too, because they think black people... Okay, according to evolution, black people are stupid. I didn't know if you realized that or not, but it's not politically correct to say that here in the United States. But black people are stupid, according to evolution. Okay? Now, I don't believe that. The Bible doesn't say that. Ephesians says this, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and depth and breadth and height to understand the love of Christ Jesus, which passes all knowledge. Okay, Christ Jesus uh, is a God of love. He's also a God of judgment. But he says that he loves every single one of these people. You see, are these all different races here? Would you say that these are different races? They're not races. There is no such thing as different races. There is one human race. That's it. One human race. Only different skin colors. The difference between a black man and a white man is a black man has more of the same thing that you already have, melanin. We don't go to these different cows and say, hey, look at all these different races of cows, do we? There's one race of cow. Just different colors. And it's the same thing with a human being. There have actually been two black people that have had white children as you can see here. It is scientifically possible. It's not, it's genetically possible. Now, throughout history, black people, and really evolution has had a lot to do with this, black people have been, uh, really just ran into the dirt because they have not been highly evolved or they're not human beings, they're animals. And the Bible does not say this. We'll talk about that. Here's the Mormon doctrine. The Mormon doctrine says, Negroes in this life are denied the priesthood. They are not equal with other races. Okay? They said it's not the Lord's doing. Okay? 
It's based his eternal laws of justice and grows out of life, lack of spiritual valiance of those concerned in their first estate. That's what black people are doing. They believe that they were cursed. Okay? It says that if there is one drop of Negro blood in my children, as I have read to you, they receive the curse. They believe that that came from Canaan, the curse of Canaan. All right? Here it says in the Mormon doctrine, the divine decree from God, Cain, Ham, and the whole Negro race have been cursed with a black skin, the mark of Cain. Now, they've changed their view on that because it's no longer politically correct to say that, so now they've changed that. But that was the official Mormon doctrine. Now, let's look at some of these explanations that are out there in the world for um, different races. You have Noah's curse on Canaan, as we saw saw here in Genesis 9, verses 24, is where that comes from, where he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And so they say, see, he was, he was cursed to be a servant, and look at what were they, black people were slaves. The Bible is true. Well, that is not what the Bible said. Okay, didn't say anything about their skin being turned a different color. Genesis 9, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall, be, or God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. All that, and that happened. Historically, we see that Canaan did become servants, they, they, but not slaves, like we see them saying. So that is not true biblically or historically that black people are cursed because of, of Noah's curse on Canaan. The other example is the Tower of Babel, where the races came from. And this is the one I believe, and this is the one that is supported biblically. The Tower of Babel, we see right after Noah's flood, all these people came to one general location, didn't they? And God said, hey, I want you to spread out and fill the earth again. And they said, no, we don't want to. We want to stay right here. We're going to build a a city of sun-dried brick and we're going to build a tower that we can worship the heavens. And God said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. He says, I'm going to make you spread out and fill the earth like I told you to do. And so he confuses their languages and they spread out. Genesis 10.5 says that... Everyone after his tongue, after their families and their nations were divided. Okay? Tongues, families, and nations. So now we see where the tongues came from, don't we? God divided them up into different tongues, into different families, and into different nations. And what would happen is if you take and you isolate a a gene pool, if you would take two people and take them to a deserted island and leave them there for a hundred years, you could come back and what you will find is a dominant physical characteristic that is there. A dominant trait. Still today you could do that. You just isolate a gene pool and that's what would happen. And that's exactly what happened at the Tower of Babel. Gene pools were isolated. Okay? Now close inbreeding like marrying aunts, nieces, or sisters can cause some unusual traits. Okay? Because what happens is a brother and a sister, they've got the same genetic mistake. So if a brother and sister would take it to a uh, a deserted island, you come back in a hundred years, yeah, you're going to have some dominant traits, but it's not going to be good ones. Even historically, we see the results of some inbreeding. Here, this textbook here, generations of inbreeding magnified the effects of family heredity. By the time of Philip IV here, the dynasty was past its heyday. All right, you get some weird-looking things coming out, historically speaking. Not only that, but we also get some you know, mental retardation, diseases. But at the Tower of Babel, you had a very pure gene pool as well. 
And so that would not have been a problem back there at the Tower of Babel. All right? Where did Cain get his wife? He married his sister. But his sister had a very pure gene pool. It's not until after the flood, as we talked about in my pre-flood presentation, that we have that whole thing changing. The gene pool getting messed up. Genesis 10.32 says this, These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided into the earth after the flood. Okay, as we go on. After the flood, this is a great book, by the way, that's going to give you uh, some information about the dispersion of people after the flood, where they all went into their nations. Um, you can read Genesis 10 and the genealogy there, and we see from Japheth all the way down there, there were 14 generations, and then it goes down to 31 generations, all the way down until eventually you get 70 generations. And as you trace this line, you can see from Shem, Ham, and Japheth that you are going to have uh, you can see from the names of their people that are in Genesis, chapter 10, where they went, which people. Japheth became the Europeans. We see that Ham became the Africans, and Shem became the Orientals. And there's lots, lots of uh, support that we can see from that, from just studying the names uh, in Genesis compared to the names of cities and things like that today. For example, there are common root words. If you look at the English, German, and Danish of the, you know, one, eins, n, okay, you, you see these commonalities that are there through all these different words. And the reason is because of the Tower of Babel having these common words that would be there as well. We also see that language can change very quickly. You go back to the time of Beowulf. You try and read this manuscript. That's, I can't. All right, there are some scholars today that could do that, but I can't read this. Language has changed very quickly, okay? But there are common roots to them. So you would expect these languages, but you don't have as many as you would think today. I mean, English today is different than it was, you know, in the old King James English. Look how it has changed as well. Um, but you go back even further. You go back to the Chinese characters, and we even see common roots there. Look at this word here for boat. The word for boat is made up of different words. Vessel, eight, mouth. Okay, now that's interesting because you have a vessel that took eight people on it, don't you? In the Bible. And as you do that, these are great books here, The Discovery of Genesis and God's Promise to the Chinese, where they'll examine the words of the Chinese and you're going to see a common root that goes all the way back to... Um, the Bible in Genesis. Okay, so there's a common root there that we, I think we have to look at. Well, the key here, though, I think, is Acts chapter 17, verse 25. It says this, Hath not God made one blood out of all nations? Or one blood, all nations of men? That means that black people, white people, red people, I don't care if you're a purple person, you have the same blood. We are all one blood, and therefore there can be no, uh, no explanation for racism at all today if you are all one blood. Malachi 2.10 says, Have we not all one Father? You know what? We're all related. Whether you like me or not, you're related to me. Because we have all one Father. And it all comes back, genetically speaking, this is even shown, we all have a, a common father of Adam, common mother of Eve. Here we even see in Newsweek, 1988, search for Adam and Eve. Scientists claim that they have found our common ancestor, a woman who lived 200,000 years ago and left resilient genes that are carried by all of mankind. Okay, The very fact that you are here shows that Adam and Eve were literal people. 
People often come to me and they say, Adam and Eve, we're, we're, they're just figurative people. Huh? The very fact that you're sitting here tells me that Adam is a real person. Because you can't descend from a metaphor. You've got to come from a literal mom and dad who had a literal mom and dad who had a literal mom and dad. just doesn't work. Great book on this is called One Blood. There's also a DVD or a video out on One Blood that will go through some of these things as well. So what about those cavemen? Do we really hunch around those fires, you know, talking about how that fire came about? No. You see, Genesis 1 says this, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. You mean God's kind of like a monkey? We were made in God's <laughs> monkey image? I don't think so. God is not a monkey. He is the creator of this world, and we'll talk about this in other ones, but he made us in his image. Okay, why do we all pay for our schools in our, with our tax dollars to, to have our kids be taught that they came from monkeys? That just doesn't make any sense. This is not grandpa here, people. We don't see evolution happening today. We don't see it happening in the past, and, and it, it's never going to happen because we're made in God's image. Okay? So I guess when people say, did we descend from cavemen, I guess it really depends on what do you mean by cavemen? Because I do believe in cavemen. But it's not what you think. You see, there are many people who lived in caves in the Bible. There are many people who live in caves today. They just have TVs in their caves, that's all. Okay, Lot and his daughters, we see in Genesis 19.30, lived in caves for a while. We even see in Joshua 10.17, the five kings hid in a cave for a few days. You think maybe they drew on walls, they were bored, you think they did some of those things perhaps? Judges 6.2 says the children of Israel lived in caves and dens in the hills. Cavemen, people basically that lived in caves. But it fit their purpose. It would be nice and cool. I've seen when we went over to Israel, we saw places where they lived in caves. It was very advanced though. But it fit their needs. That's it. The world's most famous caveman today is right here, Osama bin Laden. Okay? He, he was living in a cave. That doesn't mean that he sits around a fire and he's stupid. He's very intelligent. But we often find these bones and they say, look, fossifying might, might be the oldest link to humans. Old theory challenged, which, you know, it's constantly being challenged, uh, just by one little tiny thing. Every time they find a little new tiny bone, they're challenging, you know, everything. So let's look at these cavemen people that supposedly we've come from, all right? This is the evolution hall of shame. Because here we see Nebraska man. They found one tooth in Nebraska man, and out of this one tooth, this is what they came up with. Isn't this an amazing picture? They taxidermied this thing up in the museums, and they had all this wonderful thing. Well, later they found out the bones, they found the rest of the bones that belonged to this thing, and it turned out to be an extinct pig. So a pig turned a monkey into man. Yet this is one of those amazing missing links of cavemen, right? No, not at all. You had Piltdown Man. Piltdown Man fooled everybody for many years and later it, was turned, out, it turned out to be a complete hoax after 40 years. You've got Neanderthal Man. Another one of evolution's hall of shame. Okay, the first one was found in 1856. Now, we found many of them since then, but at first they thought, look, we found the missing link. And now most scientists today believe that Neanderthal was completely human. He just suffered from a bone disease called rickets. That's why he was hunched over and had those things, those problems. He had a brain that was 13% bigger than our own. 
Now, just because you have a larger brain doesn't necessarily mean that you're smarter, but I think there's a lot of evidence to support that in some cases it can. But ultimately, I mean, if you have a big gorilla brain or a little gorilla brain, it doesn't really necessarily, you just got to, you know, it's not the size that matters, it's the information in there that does. Okay, you can still have just a big dumb gorilla. Size doesn't necessarily mean that you're smarter. All right? But Neanderthal did have a larger brain. But what they did when they found these things, for a while there, they were putting these things in a museum and they looked very ape-like. Well, look at this article here. Anatomical reconstruction is not science. At best, it's an artistic license and imagination. Look at all the different constructions from very ape-like to very human-like uh, representations that they got from one skull. There's a lot of artistic license and basically if you want to see a monkey out of it, you can make it look like a monkey. If you want to see a human being out of it, you can make it look like a human being. We see here in this book, uh, Buried Alive, after examining the famous Rhodesia man, or Broken Hill man, Neanderthal skull, says that uh, Dr. Cuzo said, you must understand that this skull really cries out disease. The teeth are badly decayed. The bones or the vault of a skull are extremely thick. And there are many features that testify of acromegaly, or excess secretion of growth hormone, in adulthood. The brow ridge never stops growing, which may explain why. These things also have very thick brows. They were living longer shortly after the flood, which is when we believe Neanderthal was living. We talked a little bit about that in, in the pre-flood world. Okay, so Neanderthal now, by almost all evolutionists, are saying it's completely human. So I guess there goes that missing link. What about Lucy? Really today, Lucy is the only one that would be in the running of the missing link for the evolutionists today. Now, Lucy is kind of interesting because of uh, Donald Johansson found Lucy here, okay? And what he did, he found it in 1974. It's interesting why he named him Lucy as well because it came, he named him after the song, uh, you know, uh, is it the Beatles that sang that song, Lucy? Okay, do you know where they got that song from? LSD. Okay, that's why they named it Lucy. I, I think maybe Johansson, to get this to be a human being, has to be on LSD. Okay, it is not anything but a chimpanzee. Even many of the evolutionists are saying that today as well. Okay? Now, notice that the skull of Lucy that they made up here. Notice how many bones were found compared to what the skull they made. Interesting, isn't it? There's a lot of artistic license that was uh, used to do that, to get this. Now, they think that this thing walked upright because it's got an angled femur. All right? Well, that doesn't prove anything at all, okay? Because uh, tree-dwelling monkeys also have this angled femur. So this very well could be simply a tree-dwelling monkey. Lucy's knee was slightly bigger than a regular ape's knee. Does that sound like great evidence to you uh, to, to make evolution? Not at all. Tree-dwelling monkeys can also have that kind of thing. It appears that this is probably just an extinct chimpanzee. The other thing is they did not find the hands or feet of Lucy. Didn't find the hands or feet. By the way, to the knee joint, the key knee joint, it was found over two, uh, a mile and a half away, 200 feet deeper than the rest of the bones. That doesn't sound like good science to say it went with Lucy to begin with. Now, even though they did not find any knee, uh, feet or hands of Lucy, in the museums, this is Lucy, by the way, a picture out of a museum. Notice the feet. What do they look like? Human. 
human. Now, later they found Australopithecus afarensis is what Lucy is. They found other ones, other hands and feet, and guess what? They're curled just like a monkey. They're not like a human at all. They're just like monkey feet, monkey hands. Now, Professor David Menton of Washington University said the statue is a complete misrepresentation, and I believe they know it is a misrepresentation when he was talking about this statue of Lucy in the museums. So what did the museum say about this? Look, zoo officials have no plans to knuckle under. We cannot be updating every exhibit based on every new piece of evidence. We look at the overall exhibit and the impression it creates. We think the overall impression this exhibit creates is correct. Hear what he's saying? We put human feet on it and we think that that's overall correct because that's what we're trying to get you to believe is that monkeys turned into human beings even though the scientific evidence has shown it didn't have human-like feet or hands. That's not good at all. Peking man was another one that they thought for a while. Okay, what they didn't tell you is that they found many human bones with Peking man. And now it turns out Peking man wasn't uh, you know, a monkey turning into man. Peking man was man's lunch. They were smashing monkey brains, you know, eating the monkey brains and smashing the heads open. That's what all Peking man was, so there's another one that's just not going to work. Okay, ten human bones were also found with these monkey bones. So there's no way it's a, a missing link. There goes that one. Homo erectus. Okay, if it's a homo, they classify that in the genus Homo sapien. Okay, it's human. They believe Homo erectus was just human now as well. So that, there, there goes that one as well. Uh, Java man, originally called uh, Pithecanthropus erectus, meaning erect ape man, is now called Homo erectus. So Java man, Homo erectus, just human being. Okay? They dated him 500,000 years old from a few scraps of bone that they found in 1891 in, in Java, Indonesia. And Dr. Dubois believed that evolution, ha, uh, he believed in evolution, so he went to find these bones, and when he found it, he thought, oh, the missing link. So he made it look like it, you know, what he wanted it to be. But now it's just Homo erectus, a human being. Well, anyway, what Dubois did is he took this ape skull cap and three human teeth plus a thigh bone, that he found a year later, 50 feet away, and he informed the world that he had found this missing link. Well, the interesting thing is, is he hid the fact that he also found two normal human skulls in the same area for over 30 years. Sounds to me like there's some bias and there's some, some uh, I guess, religious ramifications here. There are some things that they're trying to get you to believe, and they're going to use any kind of evidence and any kind of artistic license to get you to believe that, and that's not good science. So if you want to read in greater detail about these cavemen, you can get the book Bones of Contention, which is going to talk about a lot of different things like that. We are basically praising man. We're, we're trying to find this great missing link, and we're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And that's really what's happening here. So where does the Stone Age fit into the Bible here with all of this? I think it fits very nicely with the cavemen, because the Stone Age is basically explained here right after the flood when Noah got off the ark. If you think about it, uh, after the ark, we see what ended up happening is they all went to the Tower of Babel, didn't they? And when they went to the Tower of Babel, what happens? God says, I'm going to spread you out. So what do they do? They spread out. Now, when you spread out, if God said, all right, you guys have to move now, tomorrow, very quickly, are you guys going to take everything you have? Will you take your TV, VCR, CD players, DVDs, all those things? No, especially in those days. You're going to take the necessities, aren't you? And as a small group of people are going to go, they're going to take those necessities with them. Now, are they going to plant gardens right away when the land is plentiful and it's producing all kinds of fruit for them anyway? No, you're not going to plant. And so what's going to happen is as they're moving along, 
rather than bringing their hammers and shovels and things like that, hammers are easily made out of stones, they're going to leave them behind. Oh, there's a Stone Age society it's going to look like. And they were hunters and gatherers, apparently, because they weren't smart enough to plant. But in fact, that's not the truth. The truth is, they were smart enough to know that if I can pick it off of the trees, why plant a garden and have to weed it? And so what's going to happen is you're going to have these evidences of different societies that seem to be more primitive when in fact it just fit their needs. As they got larger in society and they decided to settle where they would be, now they're going to start making their tools because uh, we'll, we'll use them. Some of them maybe didn't know how to work with metals, so they'd have Stone Age over here, but working with metals over here, Bronze Age people. Because if we would divide all of you up here in this room tonight, you would find that probably some of you could fix a car and some of you couldn't. Likewise, some could work with metals and some couldn't. So you're going to have these evidences. And as you became settled there, you'd start planting your gardens and now you would apparently, according to evolutionary reasoning, become smart enough to learn how to do that. And then, as another society that did have metals came about, they would come and conquer you with their swords and their bows and their arrows because they liked your land better than theirs. Because, you know, the heart of man is evil. And then you'd have what would appear to be Bronze Age on top of Stone Age in some places. Advancing. When in fact that's not what's happening. And that's why in the fossil record we don't see this nice little order of things. Okay, you see bronze over here, stone over here, iron over here, and it's all at the same levels. Why? Because it was all at the same time. It's interesting, if you look in the dictionary, the 1766, and even beyond that, notice that there is no word prehistoric in that dictionary. The reason being is because there's no such thing as prehistoric. Prehistoric means prehistory. Adam recorded history. It says this is the record of Adam in, in Genesis. It, the word literally means this is the written record of it. Adam was able to write, talk, record history. There is no such thing as prehistoric. People often ask me too, are women missing a rib? Do they miss a rib? Because Adam, you know, they, I've actually had Christians say, did you know that women have one less rib than man? That proves the Bible. No, it doesn't. That is very bad, not only bad science, but just bad theology. Okay, the rib, by the way, only one body in the human body is going to grow back, and it's the lower rib. If you remove that rib, it will actually grow, grow back. But let me ask you this. If you guys get in a car wreck, and you lose your arm, and later you get married, and you have children, will your baby be born without an arm? No. Likewise, you could take out three ribs of you if you want, and when you're born, you're going to have, your baby is going to have the same number of ribs that a normal baby would have. So, it's bad science and bad theology. A woman has the same amount of ribs that a man does. Very simple. Has Sodom been found? Sodom and Gomorrah. I believe there, it's an emphatic yes. We read about uh, Deuteronomy 29, verse 23, about Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, The whole land thereof is brimstone and is salt burning. That is, it is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. We often hear about Sodom and Gomorrah, but we don't hear much about Adma and Zeboim, do we? Well, bottom line is, there was not just one. Sodom and Gomorrah aren't one city. It's not one city, it's two. God overthrew five cities in that plain when he destroyed it. And when you go in Genesis 10:19, we see that the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, and thou comest to Gerar, to Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom 
and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. Now you can see there in the colors where these cities are compared to what the Bible says. And what it does is it outlines exactly the Canaanite borders. And so what we see is the Bible is telling us Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim all along this line. And so what ends up happening then is we see this outline of the Canaanite border. And it also gives you a basic understanding of where these cities should be then. And we've seen, found some of these cities and so in connection then it makes sense then that Sodom would be exactly at the base of Masada. And at the base of Masada, now when I've been there, it's amazing because I remember the first time I saw it, I was struck by the landscape. It was like something I have never seen before. And this picture doesn't really do it justice, but I said, what was that? And they just say it's just erosion. Well, there are many things that look from buttresses to archways, doorways, things like that, that are very interesting here. Um, the Bible says that this was burned with fire and brimstone, destroyed. Well, you find literally millions of these sulfur balls of varying sizes there at Sodom and Gomorrah. And they, many of them have been burned around. Okay, It's been burned up. You can still take a, a lighter, a match, and light these things, and they burn. gives off some very noxious gas, but it, 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 it burns even today. But it, many of them got encrusted around and it, it put the fire out. And there are millions of these things. Now, this sulfur doesn't match up to anything that we have today. Many people try and scientifically explain this away of Sodom and Gomorrah and say a volcano blew up and destroyed them. I don't think that's what happened. I don't think it was a volcano. I think this was a judgment of God that was unique. And here we see some great evidence of that, millions of those things going on. And, and we've got some other materials that you can get to go into this in greater detail. But in a nutshell, to answer the question, yes, I believe it has been found, and you can go see it there today. Um, is April 17th God's special day? I think this is an amazing thing. You know, Proverbs 28 says, When a country is rebellious, it has many rulers, but a man of understanding and knowledge maintains order. You know, God is the ultimate man of understanding, and he maintains order, and he orders, or he has that order outlined in Scripture in many cases. John 7, verse 30 says that this, they tried to seize him, but no one had laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. You see, God has so much order that there was even a certain time set that God was going to die. And we'll talk about this when we talk about the biblical festivals. Revelation 12.12 says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. There is a specific time that the devil has to torment you. A specific time, because God is a God of order. And one of those things that we see of God being a God of order is going to be in April 17th. Isaiah 60 says, The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. You see, God seems to have certain days in mind, doesn't he? Well, let's look then at April 17th, God's very special day. Genesis 8, verses 4 through 5 says this, On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark of Noah came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. You know, when I first read that, I thought, God... Why did you have to put all these things in the Bible? They're boring. I'm like, oh. 
another date, another name. Everything in God's Word is there for a reason. Everything. And this is one of them. You see, God said that He landed on the Mount Ararat on the 17th day of the 7th month. Well, this month, God, the 7th month, in Exodus 12, 2, says this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So what He does is He takes the 7th month and He makes it the beginning of their year in Exodus. So what we've now got is the 17th day of the 7th month becomes the 17th day of the 1st month. Now, keep in mind then that Noah's Ark landed on Mount Ararat on the 17th day of what they call the first month now, which is like our April. It's the month of Nisan. So Noah's Ark landed on Mount Ararat on the 17th day of April. What happened? God delivered Noah from destruction on that day, didn't he? Well, let's look at some other very important days. Exodus 12:14 says this, This day shall be unto you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an ordinance forever. He's talking about Passover. And as you read here in Exodus 12, you will see that this day is April 14th. And he says, On the 14th day of Nisan, of April, you are to celebrate Passover forever. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is this is three days before the 17th. And to understand this, uh, you need to understand when Passover is. So let's go on. Numbers 33 tells us the, basically the itinerary of the Israelites as they left in the Exodus. What happens is this. Here are the stages in the journey of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. The Israelites set out from Ramses on the 15th day of the first month, the day after Passover happened, right? 15th day. They marched out boldly in full view of the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn that the Lord had struck down among them. The Israelites left Ramses and camped at Sukkoth on the 15th day. They left Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the 16th. On the edge of the desert, they left Etham, turned back to Pi-Hiroth to the east of the Baal Zephon, and camped near Migdal on the 17th day now, aren't we? They left and passed through the sea into the desert. On the 17th day of April, they crossed the Red Sea, the Bible says. What did God do? He delivered them from Egypt. This is the second day of deliverance on that same exact day. But it gets better because look at this. Exodus 12.40 says that it came to pass that at the end of the 430 years, even to the exact same day, is when they crossed the uh, Red Sea, was the day they entered Egypt. So, why did Israel get to Egypt? Remember, there was a great famine that Jacob was delivered out of? So, it was 430 years to the exact same day that God uh, not only brought them to Egypt, but left the e Egypt. So, they were delivered from famine, delivered from Egypt, and delivered from the flood, all on April 17th. It gets better. We see Joshua 5.11, after crossing the Jordan, when they're going into the Promised Land, Passover was celebrated always on the 14th of Nisan, as I said. It says, on the 15th day, they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the self-same day. So we see on the 15th day, the day after Passover, they're eating this. Now it says then, which would be the 16th day, the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn. Okay. Then... It says they did eat of the fruit of the land of the Canaan that year. But, now we get to the 17th day. It says, right here in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, 
that Joshua goes out to spy out, basically, what's going on there in Jericho, and an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Joshua appears to him, and basically, you know, Joshua says, whoa, he says, are you with them or me? Are you a friend or are you an enemy? And he says, neither, neither one. But as captain of the host of the Lord, I have now come. And he begins to tell them how he is supposed to have walk around the city. So basically, on the 17th day, of April, the angel told him what he was supposed to do to conquer Jericho. And they go into the promised land. And there are many other things that we could go on that. We also see here, 800 years after the judges, one of the last evil kings was Ahaz, who was the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah cleansed the temple. He restored worship therein uh, in Second Chronicles 29, 1-28. And what you will see is it's the 16th day of the month, two days after Passover, that he cleanses the temple, and on the 17th day, worship is restored after 800 years of not worshiping God. God was about to destroy them, and they're delivered because Hezekiah has them start worshiping the true God again on the 17th day of the month. Esther, in the book of Esther, we see another great day of deliverance on the 17th of April. Uh, in Esther 3.12, they sign this thing that says that uh, all the Israel or Jews are supposed to be killed. They have a three-day fast. And what you're going to see is that on the 17th day is when Haman is killed on the gallows. And they're delivered from this sure destruction. 17th day. The final one. We see that Jesus Christ was what? The Passover lamb. When did he die? On the 14th day of the month. The day of Passover. What happens three days later? He rises from the dead. There are seven days of April 17th that God delivered his people. Seven days. That's incredible. The odds of this happening are one in a number that I don't even know what that is. Okay? Of so many important events taking place on one single day like that. It's incredible. You see, there are patterns in Scripture that are so amazing. We see so many sevens in the Bible. Revelation has 54 different types of sevens. But those sevens are a pattern. We see even in the days of creation. The first day you have light and darkness. And each day of creation is actually patterns after a thousand years of history. You know how we see it, the Bible says a, thousand, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day? I believe that a day of creation is like a thousand years of history. It doesn't mean it is a thousand years of history, but it's symbolic of it. What we see here is this. Light and darkness on day one. Day, the first thousand years of creation is dominated by what? Adam and Eve separating light and darkness, good and evil. Day two, the firmament was made. Day two, the uh, th second thousand years of, of history was Noah. Okay? The firmament was separating waters. Noah, waters. Day three, you see the land being filled. The third thousand years of history is dominated by Abraham filling the earth. The fourth day of creation was filling the sun, moon, and stars. The fourth thousandth year of history was dominated by Jacob, Joseph, his sons, which according to Genesis tells us that he was called the sun, moon, and the stars. The fifth day, you have birds and fish. The fifth thousandth year was dominated by Jesus, the, the dove and the, and the fish, the New Testament symbols. You have the sixth day of creation, filling the land with animals and man. Likewise, you have the church age of man. And then likewise, or finally I should say, the seventh day of creation was rest, and here you would have the seventh day rest. As the Bible says in Hebrews 4, there still remains a Sabbath rest for God's people, a heavenly home that he's talking about. There's these patterns that are there. But what's even more impressive, is that each of these sevens can be divided into four, two, one. That's why I've got that line underneath four. 
Because the first four follow a theme, and then the next two, and then the last one's a day of rest. For example, in Revelation, we see the same thing. You have the seven seals. Notice the first four follow a theme of horses. White, red, black, and pale. Then the next two follow a scene in heaven. And the last one is a day of rest. Four, two, one. We see the same pattern as we look at the trumpets. The first four follow a theme of one-third. Then the next two go on Satan's throne. And the last one are the vials being opened. It has nothing to do. It's just same, same thing here. We see um, the same thing happening with creation. The first four were non-living. The next two were, uh, were living things. And the last day was a day of rest. You look at all of history. 4,000 years of New Testament. Th- 4,000 years of Old Testament. 2,000 years of New Testament. And then a 1,000 year rest. The millennial reign. And so we see that happening. And there are many things in my book on Revelation. All God's Word revealed. You will see... Uh, this pattern and, and how many other scripture verses point to this in amazing ways for prophecy. But that's just to kind of uh, whet your taste there a little bit. So, should creation be taught in public schools? We had already addressed the fact that it can be, right? Um, as far as our laws go. Well, let me ask you this. Look at some of these laws. Did you guys know that we have actual laws that say, for example, in Florida, that all instructional materials shall be accurate? Why then do we have lies in our textbooks? We've got a wonderful video called Lies in the Textbooks which will show you how many lies are actually there. California textbooks shall be, shall be factually accurate, it says. Wisconsin Administrative Code 361 says that textbooks are to be factually accurate. Alabama has a code that says that they are to be accurate and current. We see here a teacher uh, shall not deliberately suppress or distort subject matter, according to Minnesota. Okay, so that means that teachers should not be able to teach evolution when things have been proven to be false, should they? Why then was Roger DeHart and many of these other people not allowed to bring truth into the classroom? I think by law, creation should be taught in the classrooms. By law, I think it should be required, even though by law it's not, according to these laws. Matthew 18.6 says, Who shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it would be better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. If we mislead our children and our youth today, it would be better that a millstone be tied around your neck. I think creation should be taught in schools. James says that we shall receive the greater condemnation that we who, who are teachers. Not many should be teachers because we're going to be judged more harshly. What's happened, though, is since 1963, when prayer was taken out of school, our whole society has just plummeted in, in, in awfulness. <laughs> it, 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 I should say it's increased in awfulness. We've plummeted in morality. Did you know that before, if you compare before and after federal funding in our school textbooks, we see some pretty amazing things going on. In 1950, there was about two to 3,000 words that dealt with evolution in our public school textbooks. By 1963, we had 33,089 words. Okay? So what happened is when we took prayer out of school, sexually transmitted diseases since then went up 385%. Just because of taking prayer out of schools. The percentage of teen girls who have had premarital sex skyrocketed. You can see on this graph how it increased from 18-year-old all the way down to 15-year-old young women after taking prayer out of our schools. 
Birth rates for unwed girls from 10 to 14 years of age went up 100%. Pregnancies went up 553%. Out-of-wedlock births skyrocketed after prayer was taken out of school. Prior to that, it was steady. Unmarried couples living together. Prior to that, very steady. 1963, boom. Skyrocketed. Okay, the Bible is very clear what he says about adultery. He says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But how many churches today are willing to preach against divorce in our society? Not many. I think if pastors would actually have the guts to preach God's Word as it is and not beat around the bush and not select which parts they like and which parts might offend people, I think that we'd have far less divorce. But we've got to put God back into our churches as well as our schools. Matthew 5 says this, I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. How many times do we talk about lust of the eyes? Because even if you lust, you commit adultery. Well, you know what? Divorce has gone up since 1963 an incredible amount. 19, or 995% of increase in violent crime since prayer was taken out of school in 19. 1963. Notice what violent crimes were like before that. Boom. Ever since then, a continual increase. But people say, oh, you can't tell me the prayer and evolution have anything to do with the things that are going on in our schools. It does. It has everything to do with what's going on in our public schools today. Unfortunately, even some Christian ones. Columbine High School. Klebold. Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. Okay, These guys, Klebold's father, he was a geologist. Both Eric and Dylan. They, they followed the Nazi teachings. They loved Hitler and all that kind of thing. That's one reason why they did the shooting on Hitler's birthday. Klebold wore this shirt that said, Serial Killer. They shot Isaiah Scholes because he was black, because they were racist, and part of that had evolution roots to it. Eric's t-shirt said, Natural Selection. Okay? Now what amazes me is some of the newspapers said, you know, they, they raised their families up as these great, you know, normal, average, you know, families. And they say still to this day there's no indication as why Dylan and Eric killed their classmates. No indication? Well, now finally it came out two years later, you know, it's been a few years more than that, I guess. But it finally came out, you know, all these videos that they were making. Yes, there were indications. We ought to be raising these kids up as heroes because what they are is a product of the education we gave them. Somebody wrongs you, wrong them back. Stand up for what you believe in. Your opinion counts just as much as my opinion because, hey, evolution is true. So your brains are a product of chance chemicals and enzymes coming together, so it's got to count just as much as mine does. There is no God that sets some standard, for evolu or standard of truth. So I guess I can't say what you believe is wrong. You take God out of schools, you take our Creator out of schools, you take out our rule giver, you take out a standard of truth. You can't tell me that that has nothing to do with it. I'm thankful for Cassie, who said yes when she said, do you believe in God? And they shot her. And Rachel. It has everything to do with that. You see, blaming guns on Columbine, it's like blaming, it's like blaming spoons for people being fat. Okay? You, you can't blame guns on Columbine. It's not the guns. It's the people behind the guns. It's the people behind the spoons. And so it's not the guns. It's what we're teaching our children. And it all stems from evolution. 
SAT scores, those didn't increase after prayer was taken out. Tell you what, they have plummeted since prayer was taken out. Now, you say, wait a minute, I thought the scores have pretty much been the same. Well, yeah, they have, but you know why? Because they've dumbed down the tests. They've changed the tests so that the scores can stay the same. That's how our education system keeps, you know, you know, improving. And that's why it's improving so much that they've got to change it every year. <laughs> it's not improving people. Teen suicide went up after prayer was taken out of school. What do Americans believe? Let's look at what Americans believe compared to what the scientists are teaching in our schools. The Gallup poll, 1291. When you ask God created the earth in the last 10,000 years, 47% believed that. According to a poll in 1995, 61% believed that God created this world in less than 10,000 years, 10, years ago. Okay? You ask them, God guided evolution of man over millions of years? 40% in 91 and 1995, 30%. Less people believe the earth is millions of years old. Why? Because of some of the things we'll be talking in this, in the presentation on scientific evidences of a young earth. Pure evolution. 9% believed in that in 1991, 4% in 95. They didn't know, 4% up to 6% in 1995. If this is what our Gallup poll is telling us, why then is evolution the, the majority in our schools? It's because the churches, these people aren't standing up and screaming about it. We need to do something, exercise our freedom. That's what we need to do. 55% of U.S. natural scientists believe in Darwinian evolution. So only 55, just a small majority of the scientists believe in evolution. But they say, oh, creation hasn't done anything. As a matter of fact, it's harmful. As a matter of fact, for 2,000 years it was taught that heavy objects fall faster than light ones, and Galileo proved all objects fall at the same speed. See, Galileo was a creationist. Galileo had a lot of good to do. We can't say the past and say, oh, they, they used to think the earth was flat. That's garbage. They didn't do that. There was a small minority of people who believed that. Did you know that in 1799, George Washington was bled? Basically, he didn't have to die. Do you know he was killed? He bled to death because they took too much blood out. They believed, basically, in bleeding you out for these different diseases. So they'd bleed you to get rid of the bad blood. But if they had just read the Bible and believed in the Bible, the Bible tells us that the life is in the blood. You can't get rid of it. The life is in the blood. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. For by Him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. God created this world. We are not some product of chance. We are made in God's image. Mark 10, 16, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Note, God sets a standard of when the beginning was. God didn't make Adam and Eve millions of years after the beginning, did He? He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. The old Bibles even said, 4004 B.C. for the date of creation. That's what the Bible really indicates. 4004 B.C. is when the world was created. But yet even this has been taken out of our Bibles because of compromise. And we'll be talking about that late on another presentation on, on the compromise of the Laodicean churches. Okay? Um, we even say now B.C., which means before Christ, they say it's now before the Common Era. They're trying to get rid of Christ out of history because 
it means that Jesus is a true man who is the true creator of this world. Textbooks say that the earth is billions of years old, and that is in direct contradiction to what the Scriptures say. We have the Ten Commandments in Scripture, but you see, if you can get rid of the Scriptures as the truth, then you can get rid of the Ten Commandments. If you get rid of the Ten Commandments, then uh, I guess you get rid of morality today. You see, God is going to judge people according to those Ten Commandments. And all of us have broken every single one of those Ten Commandments. And if we don't know Jesus Christ, where would you go when you die? You're going to go to hell. Now, the church doesn't want people to tell tell, uh, anybody that you will go to hell if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But the bottom line is, you will die someday. The number one cause of, of death in the world, do you know what it is? Birth. You, if you're born, you will die. And if you die, you will go to one of two places, either heaven or hell, and there's no in-between. That's what's going to happen. And if you break just one of the commandments, Jesus says you've broken them all. So if you've ever told a lie, ever, you are now a liar, and you have broken God's command, and you will burn in hell forever. If you do not have Jesus as your Savior, a saving relationship with Him. People say, oh, but God's a loving God. He wouldn't send anybody to hell. Try that in the courts. You kill somebody, go to the courts and say, Judge, you're a loving man. I'm sorry, you know, I I believe that you're going to let me off the hook because you're a loving man. It's not going to work, is it? It won't fly in the courts and it's not going to fly before your judge in heaven. You see, the law, God says that He gave us that to stop the mouth the mouths of men, so that there will be no excuse. You will be without excuse. And you stand before your God, your Creator in heaven, and say, you know, He says, why did you believe the earth was millions of years old? Why did you not believe my word? And you're going to say, well, you know, I thought because you won't. You're going to be so busy falling on your face because the law of God, His word, will stop the mouth. That's what the Scriptures say. So I challenge you guys to believe the word of God. You go and you check it out to see if it's the word of God because there is no evidence that the earth is millions of years old. Thank you. If you want to get some more of our information, you can go to our website. It's uh, www.creationinstruction.org. And uh, you can find out more about that. There are order materials over the website there. Uh, If you'd like a presentation, you can also book a presentation there in your area. May the Lord bless all of you. Have a good night.